Thank you, Zach. Take greetings back to Oaks Church, folks. Thank you, Zach. Take greetings back to Oaks Church, folks. At Northwake, right? So you get you get credit here and there. So <laughs> so you should go do it. So go see what God's doing. Beautiful things down there through Zach and uh, Larry Lyon. Josh Reed is a great preacher. Um, it's it'd be a great. Thank you, Zach. Take greetings back to Oaks Church, folks. Thank you, Zach. Take greetings back to Oaks Church, folks. Church in Washington, D.C., one of our church plants there. And just doing an absolutely beautiful work in Tinleytown, right up there in D.C., close to the embassy. They have a, about 125-ish people that gather on Sunday morning from 23 nations. Um, it's just it's just beautiful work that God's doing there. Uh, Nathan and Joey are our two church planners that were sent up there. They had three elders. One just left, but he was from Central Africa. The other one was from Romania, and the other one's from England. And so their church members were like, can Americans be elders in this church? <laughs> beautiful work. Um, and I encourage you to go up and visit with them. Uh, but before we open the Bible this morning, I need to tell you a story it's not a happy story. It's a true story. Um, it's an important story. Uh, it happened while I was away, and I caught wind of it out in the courtyard out here after one of the in-between services. Um, a guest dad was sitting with his daughter, who's in one of our, who's second grade age, and uh, she was um, crying and needed to be consoled because we were not offering a class for her. Because no one is willing to serve first hour to mentor some second grade kids in the faith. Um, it's not a happy story. And we want to do better for people who are new to our community or they're, they're trying to find their way in the faith. We, uh, we, we want to we do better. And I, and I want you to know that when you are reluctant to serve for whatever reason, it affects people. It affects little girls and their families and um, people who are trying to find Christ and people who are trying to plug into a church family. Um, your service matters. And uh, we have an opening, first hour, for someone to, to step in and, and disciple some second graders, which would be a great joy to you if you can do that. So if you'll join with me, we're going to take that to the Father in prayer and ask him to meet that need. And I hope that, you know, as you pray, you're putting your yes on the table and saying, God, if you need me, I'm, I'm here. Okay, let's pray. Father, um, love this church. Never seen a church serve quite like this church, and yet our needs are great. And um, this one is, is still remaining to be filled, and so I pray that your spirit, not some manipulative pastor story, but your spirit might use the need to um, prompt people to serve this family and our guests and you as an act of worship by hanging out with these kids for an hour on Sundays and loving them and sharing Christ with them. So, Lord, meet that need and, and meet our need for your word. Bring your truth to us now in a way that both encourages us and challenges us and makes us more like Jesus. Help us follow him well. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, we are... Um, 
this year in the middle of a series of teachings revolving around these three great loves that are to mark the church, to mark Christ followers. A love for God and a love for the church and uh, thirdly, a, a love for neighbor, which is really what we're focusing on this time of, of year, this season. We're teaching on these things. We talk about neighbors. We're talking about growing in our devotion to love those who are outside of our faith, who, who likely don't believe in Jesus in the same fashion that we have been blessed to do. And in this devotion to love neighbor, we're following the teaching and the example of our Lord Jesus, right? Jesus taught that we were to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and all our strength, and the second great commandment, he says, is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. and there's no other commandment greater than these. Love of neighbor is central to what it means to follow Jesus. If you're not loving your neighbor you're not following Jesus. It's that central. It's that important. And I know some of you may wonder, but what if my neighbor's a jerk? Okay. Um, what if they let their dog do its business in my yard on a daily basis with intent? What if they're my enemy? You know, Jesus taught about that. We, we heard it. Zach read it to us earlier, right? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus taught us, love our neighbors, right? Love our enemies. He didn't just teach it. He lived it. Because when they came to the place that's called the skull, where they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So so clearly, to follow Jesus is to love neighbors, even if they unleash their dog in your yard, okay, or something far, far worse. There's a guy, his name is Graham Staines. He was the director of the leprosy mission in Orissa, India, when he and his two sons, Philip, age 10, Timothy, age 6, in January of 1999, were mobbed by radical Hindus, trapped inside their vehicle, and burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered, clinging to each other. Graham had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of Jesus. He left behind a widow named Gladys and a daughter named Esther. And what her response to this crisis was, was in every newspaper in India, she said just a few days after the martyrdom of her husband and son, she says, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame 
of Christ's love. Everyone thought she would move back to Australia uh, with her remaining daughter, but she said, no, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. And then if you are, if you are in your teens, I want you to listen to this especially, especially close. That 13-year-old daughter, um, Esther, they asked her how she felt about the murder of her father. And this 13-year-old girl said, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. See, to follow Jesus is to love our enemies. It's what we do. Even enemies like these. But how? What, is, what does it look like to love enemies? And that's what Paul is talking about in our passage today in Romans chapter 12. If you'll open your Bibles there, Paul is offering another great description of the shape our love is to take as followers of Jesus. And starting in verse 9, through about verse 13 of chapter 12, he's describing circle 2, how we love one another. But then in about verse 14, he begins a turn towards that third circle, how we love neighbors who don't know Christ, even if they are our enemies. So starting in verse 14, we read this. This is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, scholars, some of them contend that in this assortment of commands, there really is no clear structure. One of them wrote about this text, how tempting it is then to seek structure where it doesn't exist. There may not be a clear structure, but there's a clear theme. And Paul repeats it over and over and over and over. Listen to it. I'm going to pull out those verses that kind of highlight what he's teaching us here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, it is written. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So four times, from four different angles, Paul hammers home the shape that our love cannot take towards our enemies. He says, don't curse. Don't don't repay evil for evil. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't be overcome by evil. And then four times, 
from four different angles. Paul hammers home the shape our love must take towards our enemies. He says, bless those who persecute you. Do what is honorable. Give food and drink to hungry and thirsty enemies and overcome evil with good. Time and time and time and time again, Paul is showing us how we must love our enemies. If I was going to paraphrase his message, he says, don't respond in kind. Love different. Love enemies. Love as Christ. What we want to do today is walk through each of those four commands, those four big statements that he gives us here, and look at some of the details that he gives that help us understand the how of being able to pull this off. Um, But as we do it, it can be helpful to realize that enemies come in different shapes and sizes and motivations. There are, on one end of the scale, little, we could call them nuisance enemies, Right? They just bother you. They may even be unintentional ones, like that neighbor with that dog. Right? But way over on the other end, we've got huge life-threatening enemies. Those would be things like ISIS in our day. Um, but for most of us, our daily lives are lived, if we have enemies, they're on more on the nuisance end of, of the scale um, than they are on the ISIS end of the scale. So I want you to just take a moment, think of someone that might fall in the category of enemy. That is, they're opposed to you. They're against you. Got somebody in mind? It's helpful to think about that person and how you ought to relate to them as we walk through Paul's teaching today, kind of bit by bit. Starting in verse 14, bless those people you're thinking about. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And notice that persecution is almost assumed here. That if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. In fact, Paul makes it explicit in 2 Timothy 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's coming. You're going to experience it. How will you respond Um, to bless those who persecute us just drips with the teachings of Jesus? We've already heard them, right? Luke chapter 6, again, Jesus says, I say to you, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To bless someone is not not the southern blessing where somebody says, I'm going to bless you out. That's not what we're talking about. That does not qualify as the kind of blessing that Paul, Paul I don't think was from the South, other than his penchant to say y'all from time to time. Um, the idea of a blessing means that we are for someone. We want good to come to them. We want God to deal mercifully and bountifully with them, to do good to them. Okay. To curse someone is just the opposite. We are against them And we're asking God to join us in our opposition. And Paul says, don't go there. Don't curse your enemies. We are to keep our hearts for those who are against us, even for those who persecute us with intent. And sometimes it's good to hear these things in a fresh version of the Bible 
And one of the freshest ones that I read from from time to time is the HWP, right? The Hawaii Pigeon version. And it goes like this, pardon my Jamaican, bad Jamaican accent, I can't help it. Ask God for make good things happen to the guys that make you suffer. I mean good things. No go ask God for make bad thing happen to them. Okay? Um, how do we do that? Okay? How can we possibly bless those who would do us harm? And I think... Paul, in his next two verses, gives us a source of strength that helps us do that. Verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And his language shifts here from focusing on how we deal with those outside the church family, our persecutors, now he's using church talk. Verse 15, there where he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's very similar to what he teaches us the body of Christ is to be like in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Okay. He is talking about the church. He's saying, participate meaningfully, relationally in the church family so that there are people who will rejoice with you and weep with you. And then in verse 16, he's using that one another language that's reserved for the church, primarily in the New Testament. It says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Associate with the lowly among you. Never be wise in your own sight. Because pride... Pride is the thing that, that busts our unity all apart here. Paul is pointing to our loving unity as a church family as fortifying strength out of which we can love enemies. When you are loved so that somebody rejoices when you rejoice and weeps when you weep, you've got love to pass on. When you, and pride is the enemy of that. And I think that's why he commands us to not be proud, not to think too highly of ourselves, not to be wise in our own eyes. Because it undercuts the scaffolding of circle two that enables us to love neighbors well, right? So it's a good question. Do you think, you're, do you think that maybe you just don't need the people in this room? That you're doing pretty good without them? You don't have to have meaningful friendships and relationships here. That's, that's a really dangerous way to think spiritually. There's a movie uh, last year called The Walk. It's a true story of a guy named uh, Philippe Petit. He was a um, high-wire artist. And in 1974, he fulfilled his life's goal of walking a high-wire between um, the World Trade Center towers. But in the movie, it shows his relationship with his mentor, and he used to travel with this guy. Um, he called him Papa Rudy. He would travel with his troupe. He never actually performed with them, but when they weren't performing, he would go up on the high wire and practice. And one time, he's practicing, 
And Papa Rudy enters the tent and looks up at Philippe, who's walking carefully but confidently across this thin wire. He hesitates as he's about to reach the platform, and then he takes a more assertive, confident forward step, and suddenly Philippe and his wire start shaking precariously. He drops the pole and falls off the wire and clings to it with both hands, barely avoiding certain death. Hand over hand, he works his way to the platform, climbs down to the ladder, and he talks with his mentor. And this is what Papa Rudy says. He says, most wire walkers, they die when they arrive. They think they have arrived, but they're still on the wire. If you have three steps to go and you take those steps arrogantly, if you think you are invincible, you're going to die. It's kind of a spiritual principle, too. If you think you're invincible and you don't need other people in your life, you're going to die. Your persecutors are going to swallow you up and you're going to become like them. You're going to love like them and hate like them rather than loving like Christ. If you don't humble yourself and let people weep with you when you weep and rejoice with you when you, when you rejoice. Paul, in the next verse, he champions that main theme again. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. Okay. Don't repay evil for evil. And again, the echoes of Jesus' teaching are all over this, right? He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Paul says it in a different way in 2 Corinthians 8. We aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable. Think about it. Okay? Not just think about it, but give thought to do. It's as though he's saying, plan it out. Anticipate it. Expect it. Have a response at the ready. Now, some of you are actively engaged with nuisance-level enemies. Maybe even higher than that. How are you going to respond to them the next time they do what they do? When the dog comes over, will you get the airsoft gun out? Okay. <laughs> and you don't want to know the source of that story, tr trust me. Um, Paul says, give thought to do what is honorable, what would be good when that person comes to do what they do, to oppose you or to wrong you, what good could be done in return? Okay. He says, do what is honorable in the sight of all. They're watching, okay? The neighbors are watching. The world is watching to see how you're going to respond. And one of those honorable responses is to be a peacemaker. In the next verse, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, if possible. So Paul acknowledges there are times when it's simply not possible. 
But as far as it depends on you, that means that you have exhausted every possibility, done every good reconciling thing. You have determined that you will not be responsible for this broken relationship. You will go the extra mile, as Jesus put it. Now, some of you have adversarial relationships in your family, and I know how, how hard that is. Some even have them in their marriages, which is unthinkably hard. Um, but I've watched over the years, and the temptation for you is to give up too soon, to quit being a peacemaker too soon, to leave good and honorable reconciling things that you could have done still on the table, to leave a miracle that God might do still on the table. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One of the best examples I, I ran across of this is um, from South Africa. My daughter just got back from South Africa on a mission trip. And if, if you know anything about South Africa, you know two guys. You know Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Two of their great spiritual and national leaders. Desmond Tutu is a bishop in South Africa. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work against apartheid. And as you know, South Africa was plagued for generations by a white minority that oppressed brutally the black majority. And uh, when Mandela became president, those tables were turned. Apartheid came to an end. And they were now faced with the question, how does a country with so much pain and violence and division in its past move forward? And Tutu and others established what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a way forward so that people would tell the truth about the atrocities they'd committed and they would receive reconciliation and forgiveness from those they had wronged. That's what the commission existed to facilitate. And... Two of the people who came before that commission were Mrs. Kalata and her daughter. Mrs. Kalata's husband had been an advocate for black South Africans in rural communities, and because of his work, he'd been arrested and detained and even tortured by the police numerous times. But one day, he completely disappeared. And Mrs. Kalata saw that morning on a newspaper she was going to deliver a photograph of her husband's car on fire. And... Um, she, it says when she was testifying during the hearing with the commission and she described the autopsy report about his torture, that she wept so loudly that they had to dismiss the hearing. And when they reconvened, Mrs. Kalata's daughter was the one who testified. Years had gone by and she was now a young lady. She pleaded with the commission to discover who had killed her father but not for the usual reasons. This is what she said. We want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. See, as followers of Jesus, we are to be begging for the opportunity to do good to our enemies. To love and to forgive them. Paul says, think about it. Pray about it. Get ready to do it the next time it happens. And so Paul, he drives this point home a third time. 
with a little more detail this time. In verse 19 and 20, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And there's a point of clarification I need to make here as we are encouraged to feed our enemies when they're hungry, right? Uh, that whole pecan pie scene from the movie The Help, okay? Not what Paul has in mind here, okay? Extremely satisfying, not what Paul has in mind. If you haven't seen it, I, it's worth just watching for that scene, trust me. Um, he says instead, don't avenge yourself. Instead, lovingly meet the needs of those who've wronged you. They wrong you, you meet their needs. How can we possibly do that? And Paul points out one thing that's really essential to that, and that is to lay down vengeance by entrusting it to God. He says, we trust in God's wrath, its surety, its totality, its sufficiency, its justice. We trust judgment to God's wrath, and we are free then to lovingly meet even our enemies' needs. And Paul says, by doing this, we will heap burning coals on his head. And some of you are thinking, now we're talking, okay? I get to heap coals on my enemy's head. Um, the difficulty with that is that's hard to square with everything that Paul says around here. So it's, it's, a, it's an expression of speech that we're not 100% sure exactly what it means. Some, it's a quote from Proverbs and some think that it's related to uh, an, uh, evidently an Egyptian practice where they might have put in coals on a bowl on their head, and it was a demonstration of repentance. Um, others think it really is an expression of God's ultimate judgment on them if they reject the love of Christ, but that's honestly contextually really difficult. Probably best, I think what makes the most sense is that somehow it's an expression of the transformative shame that leads us to repentance when our enemies return love for hate. It just makes us uncomfortable and difficult to live with what we're doing when we are loved and cared for in our time of need. Perhaps uh, I can illustrate it with a story a guy named Steve May writes about. It's about former Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame third baseman Wade Boggs. He used to hate, as a Red Sox player, he hated going to Yankee Stadium. Not so much because of the Yankees. Evidently, Boggs did just fine against the Yankees. But there was one fan that drove him nuts. He had a box seat right by the edge of the field, evidently where Boggs would be, and he would harass him with obscenities and insults mercilessly through the whole game. So Boggs, one day before game, Boggs is warming up. Fan starts his routine. It says, Boggs, you stink, and variations on that theme. So Boggs decides he's had enough, and he goes over and he says, hey, are you the guy who's always yelling at me? And the guy's up there with all his buddies, and he says, yeah, what are you going to do about it? 
And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a brand new baseball. And he autographs it and he tosses it to the guy. The guy never harassed him again. Became, became one of his biggest fans at Yankee Stadium, the story goes. I think that's, that's the power of, that's what's behind this heaping coals on their head. It's the transformative power of love, especially when you read what happens next, what Paul says next. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's what Boggs was doing. He was overcoming evil with kindness to his persecutor. Okay. This is the fourth time Paul has sounded this theme. It's a pretty good summary. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Again, maybe the HWP version will help you. Kden. No, let the bad kind of stuff get power over you. You more better do good kind of things. Then you the one that get power over the bad kind of stuff. Right? That's right. That's, don't miss what's embedded in there. Evil has the power to overcome you. The bad kind of stuff can overpower you. It's a great and dark power. You don't want to submit to it. You don't want to welcome it. You don't want it in your life, in your family, in your relationships at work or at school. You don't want anything to do with it. And in this case, it seems, Paul is saying that the best defense against evil is a good offense because love has the power to overcome evil, overcome evil with good Good has the power to overcome evil. There's a, a New Guinea uh, society that has a custom called mocha. It has nothing to do with coffee. Mocha. And by which gifts are given to gain prestige and shame rivals. There was a legendary mocha gift given in, back in the 70s that included several hundred pigs, some cows, wild birds, a truck, a motorbike, and thousands of dollars in cash. And the person who gave all this is said to have told the person he gave it to, I have won. I have knocked you down by giving so much. Right? Overcome evil with good. Okay. Whoever is against you right now, Overcome that with good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the shape that our love for neighbor is to take, especially for our enemies. We've been thinking about lesser enemies. There are great ones. There are terrible ones. There are life-threatening ones. And I'd like you to watch this video with me. We've watched it in the past. 
But it's a good example of what Jesus taught about enemies on that, on that ISIS end of the scale. It's a good example of what Paul is calling us to should we face those kinds of enemies one day. Um, watch it with me if you would.